Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf, and welcome to another episode of Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mental health and life. In this episode, I discuss an extremely hot topic and one so many of us struggle with, perfectionism. And joining me in the studio to discuss this is the perfectionism expert, Dr. Margaret Rutherford, author of the amazing book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. Dr. Margaret and I discuss why so many people struggle with perfectionism, how perfectionism can actually be hiding a deeper, darker problem, how to overcome the problem of perfectionism but still do good work, how to help your child who may be struggling with perfectionism, and so much more. Dr. Margaret Rutherford is a clinical psychologist with 25 years of experience who works with people who are battling perfectionism, depression, and anxiety. If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends, family, and on social media. Dr. Margaret Rutherford, what an honor to be talking to you today about your incredible new book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, and the work that you've been doing around this. I think you've hit on something that's extremely important that we need to be talking about and honestly, a very, very valuable information. So thank you so much for joining me in the studio today. Well, I'm appreciative of that, but I'm also thrilled. I've listened to some of your podcasts and gosh, you have a lot of books out and I'm just very grateful that you're interested in the topic. I think it is incredibly important and there are lots of reasons we can go over for that. This project kind of came to me, Caroline, yeah. rather than me coming to it. So it's- I it's, love that. Tell yeah. me about that. Well, I started- blogging back in 2012, but then I, and I was blogging actually about empty nest. And then I started thinking, you know, what do I know a lot about? Well, I know a lot about mental health. Oh. So I started going in that direction. That's when I started drmargaretrutherford.com. Mm -hmm. And in April of 2014, I just sat down to think about and to, you know, to begin to write my blog post for the week. And I started thinking about these people that I had seen over the years that were, they did not come in talking about being depressed. In fact, if you ask them if they were depressed, they were vehemently opposed to the idea. Rather, they'd say, oh, I'm just, I have this problem with anxiety, or I, I binge purge, and I'm in a new relationship, and I've got to stop, or I'm having some panic. And that's what they would come in talking about, or maybe an eating disorder even. But what I learned is that these folks didn't know how to express painful emotion. They stayed away from it. In fact, mm. I would I would tell them, I remember distinctly a young woman who was who had asked about sexual abuse very early in her treatment. This was about her fourth session. And she looked at me one day and said, you know, you asked me in the initial session whether or not I'd been sexually abused. And I said, yes. And she said, well, I think I know might need to talk to you about something. I need to tell you something. I said, okay. And she said, well, I was raped the week before I went to college. 
but I never told mm. anybody and it doesn't seem like it's a big deal. And the more she mm. talked about it, the more I realized and told her, in fact, that if I turned down the sound and mm-hmm. was only watching the way she was talking about it, that she could have been telling me what she had for lunch, that she was so detached mm. from any kind of painful experience, maybe even dissociated from it, that it was it was palpable in the room. This, mm. this dissynchronous, if I can use that term, relationship between what she was talking about and how she was talking about it. And then I began to pay more attention to that. And so I wrote about these people in this blog post. Mm. And I call the blog post, The Perfectly Hidden Depressed Person, Are You One? I just sort of came up with the term because it seemed to fit to me. Yeah. Well, at that time, I was getting maybe 50 shares, something like that. Yeah. And the post went viral. And then when it went on the Huffington Post, because I was writing for them at the time, I had forgotten that I'd left my email down at the bottom of the post, and I got hundreds of emails saying, this is me. It's like you're in my head. How do you know this is happening? And so then I began researching, well, what is out there in the popular literature about this relationship between perfectionism and depression? Perfectionism has been known to be a problem for years, Mm. but is anybody writing about its relationship with depression, possible relationship with depression? Mm. And I learned that, of course, I learned about Dr. Brene Brown, whose work is Mm -hmm. phenomenal, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but even she doesn't go the extra step or doesn't take the extra step to say, oh, could this be another presentation of depression? Mm. So that's the step that I took. And as I say, the, the topic kind of came to me because I realized with this tremendous response that I wanted to try to learn more. And when I saw this gap, I thought, all right, I've never wanted to write a book. I've never thought about writing a book, but I'm going to write a book. <laughs> so Good for you. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. What a what a great story. What a great way that you came because it came from a need that you identified and then you researched that and now you've written this incredible book. And this the link will be in the show notes as well so people can get their hands on this book. So tell us more about the book called Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Makes Your Depression. Well, the book is actually, they did, my publisher didn't want to call it a workbook, but it is actually more of a workbook because as a clinician, I wanted to make sure that we not only focused on describing the problem, but we focused on what to do about it. I am very direct as a therapist. I'm very goal-oriented. I like to give people things to do and to think about and to try. And so this book is no exception to that. There are over 60 exercises that are literally peppered throughout the text to where you can begin to take these steps to address this perfectionistic part of you or to address why you feel it's so important to have a perfect looking life and what has brought you there and how you got to be the way you are. And then how can you very, very carefully, very carefully begin to untangle those things that keep you so dedicated to this perfect looking life when really that's probably based on some strategies that you learned as a child that were your survival strategies Mm. and they don't really fit the present or they don't have to fit the present. Mm. There's so much to unpack in just what you've just said in this last 
yes. in these last few statements. So, it's, yes. so, so, so where to begin? I want to ask this question, then I want to start unpacking some of these incredible things you've just said. Something I noticed, and I was very pleased to hear it in your one of your interviews, was you spoke about the role of the therapist is not to fix people, but it's the relationship. And we all know, all of us in the field of, I practiced clinically for 25 years as well, we all know that it's not the technique, it is the oh. relationship. And I was so pleased to hear you say that. So before we start, do you mind just talking, because therapy is such an important thing. There's a need and it's important, but there's also in we in a day and an age where we want people to fix us and you know give us the formula and that kind of thing. And, and I like the way you approach therapy and the concept and it kind of sets up our discussion for depression, but this is not going to be a quick fix. No one can fix you. There's a lot of work that you have to do about this. Well, I couldn't agree more. I've been a therapist now for 27 years. It was not my first career. And I think probably for the first few years, I took the, you know, that sort of approach of, I just need to listen and reflect and guide and be gentle and all that kind of stuff, which of course Mm -hmm. is good. But very soon after that, I thought, you know, really what I think helps people, in fact, research shows this, meta-analyses show this, that it is this relationship, a therapeutic relationship that is very vital for someone to feel that they can risk Mm. going someplace that they have not been before and being vulnerable and being open to seeing their lives, both their past and their present, a little differently. And, you know, therapists, the only wisdom we have really (laughs) is what we've learned from our patients, Mm, what we've learned from people. You know, I, I have said frequently that I think as a therapist, I'm a conduit between the people mm. I've seen in the past and the people I'm seeing right now, I learn. I learn from everyone that I work with. You know, I don't have all. The, I don't have the experience as many of the people that I see do. Mm. I've never been sexually abused. I haven't had a child die. I've had mm. some bad things happen in my life. But what I can do and what I can offer is when someone's in front of me saying, "Well, this is what's happening," and I'm there to listen and I'm there to focus and to really join with them and actually, you know, I think the psychotherapeutic term, hold them safely, Mm. give them a safe place to explore who they are and what, what their experiences have been in life, that then what I can bring in is, well, you know, I worked with Jane or John or whomever 10 years ago. I don't talk about that, but I can bring in what I learned from working Mm. with them. Right. Mm. And so not only are you offering a space in which people can start to risk, but you're also saying, you know, this is what worked. Could you try this? Could you try that? So I really love to focus on tuning into people and establishing a relationship with them from the very get-go. As soon as they sit down on my sofa, I'm beginning to notice, well, I'm actually noticing whether they sit down mm. on the sofa or the chair. Sometimes exactly, that's important. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, in itself, yeah. But it's also just giving them a relationship that is like no other in their life, where I don't have an agenda except to help them find and discover what they want to discover about themselves. Oh, that's beautiful. So well said. Okay, so let's define, can you please define what perfectionism is and why it's so bad for our mental and physical health? Sure. Well, perfectionism is a character trait or a character, well, it's not a flaw because it's it's certainly perfectionism in and of itself is not bad, but mm-hmm. there's a huge difference in what's 
might be termed striving for excellence, which would be, you know, which would be considered perfectionism and the kind of perfectionism I'm talking about, mm-hmm. which is more fueled by fear and shame. If I don't look perfect, if I don't achieve everything that's possible to achieve, then I'm a failure, then I am worth nothing. And that kind of perfectionism is far different from just wanting to be really good at what you're doing and to try really hard. When I think about it, in fact, I think striving for excellence is much more process-oriented, meaning that if I really, let's say I just really want to make a great dinner and I want to make an excellent dinner Mm -hmm. and I make a mistake. I'm going to go, well, what did I learn from that mistake? And you can look at it more as a process of learning, of striving. And of course, you, and that is innate. That is something Mm. that you just, as a person, you want to do very, very well. Mm -hmm. Perfectly hidden depression involves the kind of perfectionism that is fueled by shame, meaning, and again, Mm. I'm repeating myself, but it's good. You are so afraid of not being perfect that you've got to hide any kind of mistakes that you make. It's not a learning process. It's so, mm. it's very goal-oriented. I have to reach this goal for a certain reason. And research is coming up with some really interesting things that are fueling that, which we can talk about in a minute. Mm. So perfectionism that's destructive is far different from perfectionism that's actually constructive. And mm. both can coexist, but when it begins to turn into this I must be perfect. I have to be, I have to look perfect. Then that is when you are fending off shame and any kind of sense of being less than rather than it being something that's really bringing your life joy. Mm, That's such a good explanation. So perfectionism that's good is one that actually is constructive and you're learning from that and you don't beat yourself up about it if you don't achieve because it's a process of learning versus the bad perfectionism or the dangerous perfectionism is where you actually won't allow yourself to fail. You don't learn from it. You just try and hide it and 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 it's fueled by shame. So the one is fueled by learning, one is fueled by shame. Exactly. In fact, I asked when I was writing blog posts about this to sort of learn more about it and test the waters, I put a request in for people who might want to voluntarily be interviewed by me. And this would Mm -hmm. be, of course, anonymous. And I had, I don't know, 70 or 80 perfectionists from all over the world contact me and say, as long as it's anonymous, I will do it. And many of them really identified with perfectly hidden depression. So I did about 60 personal interviews, Mm. everyone from a brain surgeon to a motivational speaker, interestingly enough, to a woman that was in charge of one of our larger states advertising campaigns, people who were from every walk of life. At the top of their game. And at the top of their game. Yes. And I said, why would you want to be interviewed? What is it that's that's motivating you to open up to me. And they said to a T because we don't want anyone else to live the life that we've lived. It's oh my so gosh, lonely. that's fascinating. It's so, dis- I'm, I'm full of despair that I can not allow anyone to see. No one really knows me. And it is a terrible way to live your life. I have tried to commit suicide or I've looked for help and I can't find any. Or when I do even deign to wonder, could I possibly de- be depressed? 
I'm filled with so much shame that I would even fathom the idea that I have so many blessings and why would I ever consider that I was depressed? The people that are really depressed need help. The people that can't get out of bed, the people that, you know, are hopeless and helpless. I'm not hopeless and helpless. I'm just hiding. Wow. And that was consistent across all your 60 interviews. That was a consistent theme. So there's the mental health, their mind management completely gone awry. And I would assume their physical health, that they were suffering certain physical, maybe not massive, but starting insidious physical health issues. Then, And it was consistent across all 60 people, the shame and how they've got to kind of hide it. Yes, exactly. I didn't really get into it. I wish I had. You know, you've written books. I, I This is my first book, but I, I knew that when it was finished, I would look back and say, oh, why didn't I do that? Oh, always like that book. I tell you, Margaret, every book I write, I do that. <laughs> <laughs> and looking at the physical aspects of this was something that I regret not doing more of. But, you know, whatever. I, 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 yeah. I'm, a, I'm a novice. I'm a novice author. So plus I had to face my own perfectionism when well, I was writing know. it. Isn't but that yes, to yeah. a T, they said, this is just such a, an awful way to live your life. And so detached and so just the pressure is constantly on and nothing turns it off. And I don't want anyone else to live that life. So the pressure is constantly on. You don't want to turn it off. Don't want anyone else to live like that. And then they don't feel like they can change that. So if you think of some of these people like Kate Spade and Robert Williams, people that have, you look and think, why them? How could they? They're so successful. So the image they've projected to the world, but deep down inside, there is this terrible drive to perfectionism that's destroying them. Yes. And you know, there are people have asked me, well, how, how do you become someone with perfectly hidden depression? And, and I want to state firmly that Mm. I'm not, I have not come up with some new formula, uh, (laughs) formula for depression. It's not, I've just put a name to something and it perfectly hidden depression is not a diagnosis. It's a syndrome as I've thought of it. And it should be like that. I think we should think of all these, when it comes to mind, we should always rather talk about clusters of symptoms as opposed to a diagnosis, get away from the biomedical model. Right, right. And so I started thinking about, well, what are these people telling me their lives are like? What do they look like to other people? What do they, what are their inner world, what is their inner world like? And I put together these 10 traits of perfectly hidden depression. And there could be more. I mean, but these have seemed to make sense to people. I saw that in your, you've written, a, right. there's a very good article on Mind, Body, Green with your 10 traits. And, and it's also, you talk about them in your book, obviously. So let's talk about those, which, how would you like to, do you want to run through all 10 or do you want to pick up on some that stand out? Well, I can do either way. This is maybe the main one, a perfectionism that is fueled by shame because that is Everyone that I've talked to, the people that have written me, they say this is the crux of it. The main one. The, okay, fuel by shame. So that's the main one. Although serotonin is well known as a brain neurotransmitter, it is estimated that 90% of the body's serotonin is made in the digestive tract. Serotonin serves many functions in the human body, including playing a role in emotions and happiness. So, an unhappy gut can really make you unhappy. Fortunately, there's a solution to healing your gut and boosting serotonin production. Probiotics. My favorite is the Daily Symbiotic by Seed because it combines 24 clinically verified, naturally occurring probiotic strains with plant-based prebiotics that can help improve digestion, skin health, heart health, micronutrient synthesis, 
and help reduce bloating, alleviate occasional constipation, and more. A healthy gut makes a healthy mind and body. Get 15% off your first month of the daily symbiotic when you go to visit https forward slash seed.com and use the code mentalmess at checkout. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. So before we dive into talking about that in more depth, I just want to quickly ask you to do an umbrella description between what's the difference between perfectly hidden depression and then sort of a general feelings of depression, because depression is something all humans experience at different stages sure. of their life and it's on a sliding scale and it's quite normal. It's telling us that there's an emotional warning signal that something's going on, but then it can t- tip in the wrong direction, et cetera, et cetera. So can you just define as broadly as possible, just a difference between what's, what sure. are you talking about? This? What's different with what you're about to tell us? Sure. Well, the major thing is that the symptomatology is very different. Now we're kind of going back to the medical model here, but if you look at the two major criteria for classic depression is what I call it at this point. It is depressed mood, which is noticeable either by the individual or by others. And that depressed mood lasts a certain amount of time. And then there's anhedonia, which is the lack of pleasure in previously pleasurable things, meaning you don't Mm -hmm. want to do the things that you've done in the past that have brought you fulfillment or joy or pleasure. So neither one of those exists outwardly and perfectly in depression. Mm-hmm. Outwardly, this person is far from depressed looking. They are, in fact, again, they wouldn't call it depression. If they've experienced trauma, they don't call it trauma. They have developed, again, probably from very early on, a strategy that was born in childhood, an emotional survival strategy that in order to handle whatever what's going on in their family. And that could have been abuse. It could have been neglect. It could have been having an alcoholic parent. It could have been that you were rewarded for being highly accomplished in your family, or you pleased a parent because you were so highly accomplished. And so you wanted to please them. It could Mm -hmm. have been because your family was one that said, we don't talk about anger. You are not allowed to be angry. You're Mm -hmm. not allowed to be afraid. You're not allowed to feel sorry for yourself or even feel sad. And none of that was allowed. And so, as we say, there are a lot of roads to Rome here, Mm. but it's still perfectly hidden depression is more of a, it's much more of a way of life than it is something that goes wrong in your life. Depression Mm. is, depression is a disease. It's a disorder that many people very courageously deal with. There's something called high-functioning depression or smiling depression where people actually say, yes, I'm depressed. I feel hopeless. I have foggy thinking. I can't concentrate. I'm indecisive. I'm eating too much or sleeping too much or not eating enough or whatever. And they fit mm-hmm. those that criteria for depression. People with perfectly hidden depression or who identify with it are people who look super or uber Good. Yeah, they seem like they're in, as we said earlier on, in control of the top of their game, in control, happy, like they seem like everything's going well. Right, exactly. And so the huge difference is that, in fact, I I used an example in the book of a man that's for, of a man that said he went to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist handed him the typical depression assessment inventory, probably the Beck. And Mm -hmm. he answered the questions all, no, I don't feel that. Do you ever feel hopeless? No. Do you ever feel helpless? No. Mm -hmm. And then three weeks later, he, he tried to die by suicide. 
and the psychiatrist came to his hospital room and was somewhat mm, miffed a little bit because he looked at this man and said, well, I gave you the depression inventory, but you didn't answer the question truthfully. And the man looked at him and said, I answered the question truthfully for who I am. What the question should have been is not, do you ever feel hopeless, but would you ever tell anyone, reveal that you feel hopeless? So what you've just identified there, Margaret, is something that's so close to my heart. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because I do clinical trials on research of the mind-brain connection. And one of the things that we've just been doing is looking at what at depression as a symptom and how important it is to look at the person's story. And one of the things that's been, right. there's many different things that have come out of the study, but one of the things is that we cannot take a checklist and assume that you know what someone's going through. You have to treat every person as an individual case study with their own narrative and their own context. And that's sorely missing. I, I don't know if you saw this, but over my 25 years that I practice, I don't practice anymore, but I saw a shift from people being seen as a human with a story mm-hmm. in a context where you would ask the question, Question, would you ever feel, as you just described that question, would you ever, the, how he said to the psychiatrist, you've asked me the wrong question. You exactly. should have said, would you ever be comfortable telling someone that you feel that? So if the psychiatrist had asked him his story, he would have heard that versus just a list of symptoms. And that's where the biomedical model for trying to help people understand and process life is not the answer. We have to go deeper. And and, I think your work is definitely contributing to helping us look at these things in a much broader context. Well, I certainly hope so, because, you know, I... Being a mental health professional, I'm quite aware that I don't have a crystal ball. And if someone's not telling me what's going on, then I may not know. But what I'm hoping with the book, and certainly with help from you and other podcasters that have been so kind to have me on, is to wake up the mental health profession and say, you know, you need to be aware of this constellation of traits. Yeah. That if someone isn't looking sad when they're talking about their mother dying or losing their job or whatever it happens to be. And they kind of blithely tell you about things and they don't really know why they're there. And a lot of clues these people give, then you're going to miss it. And, and we're going to lose these people because there's some excellent research going on, especially in Canada right now, that, There's a certain kind of perfectionism called socially prescribed perfectionism, which I think is very akin to perfectly hidden depression, and that it is significantly correlated with suicidality. I was just about to say, that sounds, yeah. And socially prescribed perfectionism is what's termed perfectionism that is about constantly feeling like you have to meet the expectations of others and that those expectations are always rising. Dr. Gordon Flett, who has become an acquaintance of mine, and I'm really thrilled to have gotten his advice on the book. He said, it's like the person feels like if I do better, then I have to do even better the next time because, you know, it's kind of like if you scored a hundred on a math test and then you thought, you thought to yourself, well, I can never miss another problem. And just the pressure that you would feel, whether it's the amount of money you raised or what kind of job you did at work or whether your oldest child is doing really well. So then your second child has to do really well, whatever it is, it's this constant drive to meet other people's expectations and do it better and better and better. 
as you've described that unbelievably well, and, and about think about the increase in suicide, that makes so much sense because yes. it's actually taking away the person's unique ability to explore life and make mistakes, which is all part of it, and be able to fail and learn for or fall or fail, whatever you want to say, and see failure as a learning experience. And all that's taking all of that away. It's created, and it's it's a lot to do with our modern era, and also a lot, you know, with technology. But I think it's huge, a huge factor as well is how the mental health profession has handled mental health. You know, if you're a machine, if you just seen as your brain and that you could just program your brain to function and it just, it's all about just a list of symptoms and your story doesn't count, you take people's story away that they have to lift up to unrealistic expectations, which is right. what you've just described so beautifully. Right. So let's talk about these. You said shame. Do you want to talk more about shame or do you want to go into the others? Well, let's let's briefly go over okay. the other the other traits. Good. They're very overly responsible. They're all, their hands are always in the air. I'll do it. And this is tied in with the idea that these people will accept a new responsibility or someone will say, gosh, you're so good at this. Do you mind taking this on? And instead of taking something off their plate, plate their plate just gets fuller and fuller mm. the third one is they're very analytical people they like to stay in their heads in fact i've heard people say things like i'm just not a crier or gosh if i started crying i'll never i'd never stop mm. these people are much more comfortable in their mental worlds than they are in their emotional worlds they mm. are, tend to be warriors and they have a lot of need for control now this is no Discovery. I think when we think about perfectionism, we think about control and anxiety. Mm. Mm. It's a fairly new idea to think of it as as being linked to depression, but and it's very tied in with obviously being overly responsible. There's also an intense focus on tasks, meaning that they struggle to innately feel as if they're worthy without some kind of accomplishment. Mm. And what I what I mean by this is that. For example, if I had therapy when I was in my 20s and I was very perfectionistic and I remember one time a therapist looking at me and saying, what would happen if you thought, if you could take the thumb out of your back, what would happen? And I looked at her and said, I'd turn into a slug. Mm. <laughs> and, and that's how deeply I believed that it was this the, it were these it was these accomplishments that were keeping me feeling good about myself rather than my innate sense of worth. So that's almost like the person who at the end of the day they start the day with a list and at the end of the day there's a list and if they haven't completed that list they just it's all about this is what I didn't do instead of this is what I did do. Exactly. Exactly. The sixth is that there's a now there's a focus on others. In fact these people are really very good friends. They're very caring and very sincerely caring. They can have a lot of empathy for others, and but they don't allow anyone else into their inner world. These are people who will say, I'm fine, really. And then they'll say, and, you know, if I weren't, I would tell you. Well, that's probably not true. <laughs> mm. They are just incredibly reserved and almost distrustful of letting anyone in to see who they are, what they struggle with. They discount their hurt or sorrow, meaning... I'll give you a great example. One person who came in and who identified with perfectly hidden depression, I was moving very quickly in between patients and she happened to sit down right where my former patient had been, not three minutes before. And so the seat was still a little warm and she looked at me and she said, I bet my problems are nothing compared to who you just saw. Mm, my goodness. I mean, mm -hmm. and I looked mm -hmm. at her and I said, and you're, you're describing that because of what? 
what makes you feel like that? She goes, well, I already feel odd for being here because I just don't think I have anything therapy worthy to talk about. I said, well, you know, I may disagree about that. They also count their blessings and do this as a mandated kind of idea. They don't understand or they don't allow themselves to see that even blessings have underbellies. I mean, I guess if you, in our culture, if you have wealth or you're very attractive, people see you as, gosh, I wish I were like that. Well, the underbelly underbelly of that is, are people my friends because they like me or because I'm wealthy or I'm attractive? There's always an underbelly to Mm -hmm. a blessing. And they don't allow themselves to even see that. One of the two last ones is... Can, can, can I just ask you, because it's oh, fascinating, sure. that one. So they're expressing their gratitude or they're seeing this blessing, but they're not seeing the underbelly of it, that there's, there's right. the counter side. So they're almost tricking themselves, if I'm hearing you correctly. Exactly. It's almost like they're deluding themselves and saying, oh, I'm so happy that I have whatever. But at the bottom of it, it's actually what they're saying is that I'm not good enough. I should have what they've got or something. Is that correct? Explain the underbelly. Mm-hmm. Sure. What I mean by an underbelly, when you when you think about a, a rock that you walk on all the time and you see the rock and it's a rock that you stand on and you count on and you you appreciate being in your life because it's part of the path that you're on, right? Well, if you turn that rock over, then it's got moss and some worms. I mean, Mm -hmm. but it's the same rock. So Mm. something that you count on in your life and that is a blessing, if you turn it over, then you will see that there are things about it that are difficult. You know, you're a well-known author. And I'm sure you're highly respected in many in many ways. Mm-hmm. At the same time, how much of that is pressing on you sometimes? Mm. How much of that do you sometimes want to just go, I wish nobody would ask my opinion? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a little hard to be in the spotlight uh-huh. all the time. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's sort of like it, it's okay to to see that something is a blessing and not a curse, but has its as has, a side. It has its other side that's much more difficult to deal with. Think about celebrity, for example. We worship celebrity here in the United Mm -hmm. States, but there's a lot of underbelly to celebrity. Mm. So I just think that people who who have this idea that you must stay, and actually these are also a lot of very conservative religious folks sometimes who really struggle with this, because I've had people come into therapy and say, I think I'm failing in my faith because I'm even talking to you. And because Mm. I'm not, I should be counting my blessings and I'm a Christian or I'm whatever their religion is. And I've got all the answers and yeah, I I must be failing. So this is a really strong component of perfectly hidden depression. I'm so glad you brought this up because a lot of the people that that follow me are very strong faith-based and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And what we do see is we get so many emails and direct messages and questions being asked about this. You know, I I believe in this and I'm saying the scriptures and and yet I'm still depressed, I'm still battling. And there's so much guilt and condemnation and shame around that. And then there's also a lot of, I mustn't say anything negative. I must just say the positive and I must just speak faith words. And But then you're denying all the underbelly you denying all the stuff that you actually need to get out and actually maybe see from a different angle maybe you're seeing it all wrong it's excess gratitude <laughs> I yeah mean, I, unrealistic 
I, I fully believe in gratitude, but it, there, John Kabat-Zinn uses this term called rigid positivity, which I really like. And he mm. says rigid positivity can lead you down a path that's just as irrational as being rigidly negative. <laughs> exactly. So, it's a balance, isn't it? Yes, it's a balance. One of the last ones is the traits is that you're often very successful at work. Corporations, business leaders, they love people who are perfectionists. I want my brain surgeon to be a perfectionist. I want my accountant to be a perfectionist. And so you do very well at work, although there's maybe a lot of strain and pressure, but your relationships with other people tend to be really problematic. You may be drawn to people who are also wanting to hide and just have a perfect looking life. You may be prone to be in a relationship with a narcissist because they want you to take a lot of responsibility. Mm. You may be prone to choose someone who's an under-functioner because you're such an over-functioner. So Mm. there could be problems. Or, Or of course, someone could be watching you going, wow, the longer I live with you and love you, I realize that you just don't ever reveal your sadness or your pain. And I'm, I'm really concerned about you. Then the last one, mm. and this is more of a clinical one, meaning that I don't want anyone to think that the term or the definition or the dynamic of perfectly hidden depression is going to be the only thing you need to look at, meaning that you could have a concurrent existing condition like an eating disorder or like generalized anxiety disorder or like OCD or like an addiction that comes along with this syndrome of having to look perfect because you, I don't want anyone, I didn't want anyone to read the book and think, oh, oh, I'm, I have perfectly hidden depression and not look at, wait a minute, I also have severe anxiety or I'm using Xanax to help me calm down too much or whatever. So I wanted to make sure and put in there that this isn't the only thing that could be something that deserves your attention. I'm glad you mentioned that because you actually, if you really look what the words depression, anxiety and OCD and and all these, these are not it's. I always say to people, they're not an it. It's actually a description of a whole lot of emotional and physical warning signals that are telling you that there's something going on in your life that you have to start digging deeper to find out what they are, which is what they, when they come to you for therapy, that's what they're doing. So that perfectly hidden depression is one of a constellation of things, if I'm understanding you correctly. So it's very, very likely that if you've perfectly hidden depression, just the way you described it can make you feel anxious, just that, that constant pressure. So you can't separate out the anxiety from the depression is what you're saying. I'm so glad that you right. brought that, that these things are comorbid. They exist together. They all flow into each other as a description of what you're going through in that one particular moment. Now, that's where I think our very biological, reductionistic, biomedical model has taken away what we spoke about in the beginning, the person's narrative and all the colors that we need to describe it. So I'm so glad you brought that up, that this is a definite issue that people are hiding behind perfectionism and it's definitely leading to a depression, but it doesn't mean that there won't be anxiety or OCD or maybe eating issues or something because those are not it's, they are emotional warning signals that go along with it. You know, Caroline, it takes a lot of courage and resolve to look at your life like this and begin to want to risk changing it because Mm. this is something that has stood by you. Again, I listed a few ways that you could begin to have developed this sort of strategy for your life. And just to claim it as a problem is a huge step. 
That's the first thing to do that. As I'm so glad you said that, to, to actually have the courage to acknowledge that this could be an issue. Because in the book, I talked a lot about, well, not a lot, but I talked some about how it's sort of like the game of Jenga, or when I was growing up, it was pick up sticks. <laughs> that mm-hmm. you know, you you yeah. have to very carefully remove a piece so I that the whole thing doesn't <laughs> <laughs> so that you don't the whole thing doesn't crumble, and that's mm-hmm. very much the way I think this feels initially to people who are beginning this work is that if they even dislodge anything that is keeping them what they perceive as stable is so frightening to them, it's such a risk, and so it takes mm-hmm. a lot of mindfulness and being aware that although, yes, this has served a purpose, this sort of rubric or way of considering the way you needed to be has served a purpose. But the things you're telling yourself that what would happen if these were not in place isn't rational. And so that takes a lot of work to just even begin to commit to the process of dismantling, I think was a word you used a few minutes Mm. ago, dismantling this perfect looking person. I can remember a woman I worked with that finally got in touch with some anger she had had with a man in college that she'd had a sexual relationship with, but who was very abusive to her. And she had never made the connection between her feelings at that time and how they had impacted her and some of the present day problems in her life. Because she thought that actually she was just doing the thing that was called for. She Mm. was very much in control of her life and her sexual life as well. And basically, when all that happened in college, she said to herself, I'm never going to let anybody else be in control of me. And that Mm. that was affecting her marriage. But for her... It was the way she was protecting herself. Mm. It was the way that she was keeping herself going and keeping herself invulnerable to hurt and to Mm. risk. And that's the classic example of, of this perfectly hidden depression. Exactly. Anyone else sometimes struggle to find the motivation to work out, especially now that gyms are closed, or find it hard to get back on track with a healthy eating plan after a holiday or special occasion? Well, me too. We all know how great it feels when you can finally fit into that pair of jeans again or when you feel good overall and more energized because you're eating healthy. But creating healthy habits can be so hard. That's why I love Noom. It's the habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. Based in psychology, Noom teaches you why you do the things you do and empowers you with the tools you need to break bad habits and replace them with better ones. Noom is not a diet. It's a healthy and easy-to-stick-to way of life. No food is good, bad, or off-limits. Noom teaches moderation and can be used in conjunction with many pre-existing popular diets if you want. I also love the community aspect available with Noom Chat with your goal specialist and Noom community to get and give help to people going through the same things. You don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com forward slash Dr. Leaf. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com forward slash Dr. Leaf to start your trial today. That's N-O-O-M dot com forward slash Dr. Leaf. The link will be in the show notes. Can you walk through just some 
tips, some techniques, some guidelines, if someone is resonating with what they're hearing now? Well, I think that there are, I'll tell you a little bit of a funny story. My my publisher, the way I had presented the book was really more of a description. And they looked at me and they said, we're really interested in the topic, but you have to come up with a healing strategy. And you've got two weeks to do that. Mm, <laughs> I, I, know went, that oh. I know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I sat down and thought, okay, I've been doing this for a long time. What What is it that I do with almost every client? And what I came to was, again, this sort of awareness of the problem or called consciousness at the beginning. The second stage being commitment, meaning trying to look at what's going to get in your way of changing and and beginning to address that. Things like a perfectionist will pick something to work on that's far too big. (laughs) They'll pick Mm. something that's far too hard. And so they'll sabotage themselves in the process. But the two major stages of work would be where you go back and you look at the rules you're following that you're following now that really you absorbed as a child. Things like anything silly could be a very silly thing. Like, you know, my mother told me, this is a quite silly example, but she said to me that I looked sleepy if I didn't curl my eyelashes. And so I curled my eyelashes until I was about 44 years old, sometimes two and three times a day. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and with when I finally had my child and I said, well, throw this stupid thing away, I was I just knew everybody was going to come up to me and go, gosh, are you resting well? Mm, That's so (laughs) So funny. Anything from confronting those kinds of rules to much, much more significant rules, like I can never be angry. I can, sadness is not allowed. It's my job to take care of other people and just see how rigidly mm. those roles are, those rules are being applied. But the next one is something you're more talking about, which is what you know. I use, and many therapists use this, it's called a trauma timeline, where you go back and you look at your life from whatever age you want to, two, three, four, onto your adult life, and you begin to actually make a timeline of the good things that have happened to you and that were influential in a positive way in your life. But then the things that you begin to say, wow, no one listened to me when I said I was being bullied. No one believed me when I said I was being sexually abused or the fact that I was sexually abused is obviously trauma or the Mm. fact that we moved 12 times in my childhood because my parent was in the military or whatever it happens to be, to, to be able to begin to assess and accept the hard things in your life and to go back and begin to see. So I have to acknowledge or I'm choosing to acknowledge what that did to me how that changed me, how that influenced me in either, again, for more positive things in a positive way or for more painful things in a negative way. And, Mm. you know, I I worked with a man one time who said one of his rules was, I can never make mistakes. And when he was doing this trauma timeline, he found a picture of himself when he was six. And he didn't do feelings very well yet. So, but he said he looked at the picture and what he wanted to say to that little boy was, don't grow up because right now you don't make many mistakes, but you're going to make lots of mistakes and you're not Mm. going to know what to deal with them. He was so full of shame because he had learned as a little boy that it's not okay to make mistakes. You have to be, Mm. yeah, exactly. You know, you rub some dirt in it and go on. Mm. And you don't admit that it hurts or that it's okay that you make mistakes. And so people have to go back and acknowledge, not blame, 
but acknowledge whatever happened to them as trauma, as sadness, as grief. What they would always tell someone else if, if, if I said to you, yeah, my mother had horrible depression and she used to talk about killing herself all the time, that's trauma for a child. Mm, very traumatic. Mm. Right. And so, and then of course the last is the last stage is change is taking all these revelations and insights and discoveries that you've made about yourself and then beginning to look for small ways that you can begin to change. Again, thinking about these 10 traits, let's say, again, let's start with the first one. You're perfectionistic and, and don't want to admit mistakes and don't want to show anybody your vulnerability. Well, you know, a small thing you could do at your work that next day would be to look at after a committee meeting and you're chair of the committee to say, you know, I'm not really sure where to go from here. Anybody have any suggestions? Mm. Rather than having to be the one that looks like you've got it all together and you know everything, beginning to open yourself up as someone who says, yeah, I'm vulnerable. I don't always know the direction to go. Does anybody mm. else have any ideas? Things that you can are foreign to the foreign, foreign to the to the psyche right. at that point, but that you've acknowledged now, and you can actually see that that's an issue, and this would be a counter. This would be the antidote. Yes, one of the things that I work with a lot with people like this is they believe self awareness is equitable with self centeredness or selfishness, mm, and so it's so good. So I would say to them, okay, I want you to set a random time on your on your phone that where an alarm will go off, and I want you to simply, right at that time, check in with yourself and go, what am I aware of in myself that I want to do for me? That could be get up and stretch. That could be go get a cup of coffee. That could be sit and do nothing or or mm-hmm. think about what you could have. I don't care what it is, but begin to be attuned to what your own needs are, what your own desires are, and not call that selfish or self-centered. So, and if you can begin to do that, it's a, it seems like a, a very small thing, but these bigger changes are based on those smaller changes. Mm, that's fantastic. I love that. And then, so just the three steps, just for, or sort of three processes, not even steps, the three processes, just quickly, there quick five. summarize. Five. There's five. five. There's consciousness, consciousness. awareness. Mm-hmm. There's commitment, which is looking to see what would get in your way of doing this work. Then there's confrontation of the rules mm-hmm. that you're following and why you're following them. And do you still want to follow them or not? Mm-hmm. Are they actually not helpful? Then there's connection, meaning you're learning how to connect with your emotions. Mm-hmm. So many people, Caroline, don't know how to do mm-hmm. this. Oh, yeah. That's a big problem. Don't mm-hmm. know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so, and then the last one is change. Mm, And of course, that's changed not only in yourself, but change in your relationship with others, which is Mm. often the really tricky part. That's the tricky part. Okay, so the last question I have for you, well, there's a lot more, but I'm going to have to make this the last question. How can we help a child or teen who may be struggling with this issue? What would you, based on those five steps, based on everything that you've just told us, how could you help advise a parent who's got a child or a teen who's struggling with this issue? Sure. One of the things that I get most perturbed by and actually disturbed by also is when a teenager or a celebrity dies by suicide and what do we all see on television? What we see, and which is fine mm-hmm. and, and helpful, are these traditional classic signs of depression. Mm. You know, watch for isolating, watch for this, mm. watch for changes in grades, watch for mm. changes in hygiene, watch in, watch for, mm. you know, do they, are they changing the groups they hang out with? Is, is their schoolwork failing? You watch for those things. 
And sometimes I want to throw a pillow at the television. Mm, because I agree with not, you. What's not being said is, are you modeling as a parent how to talk about your own vulnerability? So good. You know, does your child see you sad? Do they see you sometimes overwhelmed? Do they see you struggling? And are you, not and it, are you expressing it and are you modeling how to yes. acknowledge and express and connect at all those five steps, all yes. those five concepts? And so, you know, you want to do it in an age appropriate way. You don't mm. want to, you don't want to count on your child as a confidant of some kind, but you can say, you know, mom's struggling with this. I didn't get the promotion I really hoped for. And I'm sad about that. And I think I've worked hard. I'm a little mad about it. And so you are showing them that it's okay to be vulnerable mm, so and important. to express that vulnerability. And because these people, who identify with perfectly hidden depression do not know how to do that. And if you grow up in a household where people, your parents or your grandparents or whomever, your your people you're you're being cared for, if they don't do it, then you miss it. You miss mm, it. That's you know, I love excellent. Michael Yapko's work because he talks a lot about how depression can be learned. That mm, a way of I thinking agree with you. Can, a way of thinking can be learned. And mm. that kind of thinking negatively and, and not seeing the things that, you know, things that the classic things that people who are depressed struggle with, a lot of self-doubt or a lot of just whatever it is. I mean, believing that the world is a nasty place or whatever they tell themselves. And sometimes there are nasty things in the world, that's for yeah. sure. But so what you can do is to make sure that you're talking about your own vulnerability, your own, I'm a firm believer that our strengths do not define us any more than vulnerabilities do, mm. nor do vulnerabilities define us any more than our strengths do. Strengths do, yeah. It's a combination, yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's absolutely brilliant advice. And, you know, I, I totally agree with the fact that you can learn this behavior. In fact, the work that I've that I do with the mind brain research, the mm -hmm. science shows that this is a, these are learned behaviors because we're not naturally going to fall into those negative perfectionistic behaviors. It's kind of counter to who we are as humans. So right. we can, and we can get, and yes, we'll go up and down while experiencing them, but to have them as an actual character trait is a learned behavior. We've got to make almost like make them into habits. I totally agree with what you've said there. Margaret, right. I have one more question. Do you think social media is contributing to the rise of perfectionism? Yes, inadvertently perhaps, but I think so many people look at, posts and wish their lives were like that or but but what they don't understand and what people are trying to get out there is that people design those things to look that way i frequently when i see somebody's gone to the seashore perhaps and there's this picture of this gorgeous sunset i think so did they get bitten by jellyfish today i mean what? yeah, yeah what? that's a good one what's, what's the did, did, they, did, they <laughs> did they have a fight you know because one person wanted to walk on the beach and the other didn't you know we, we don't the, post the about that on facebook yeah, yeah though, no. the underbelly right mm. yes the sunset is gorgeous but, you know, it, at the same time, there can be reality that sets in. And, and of course, with social media is also, I don't know if you know the work, and I'm going to murder her last name. It's Jean Twinge. Oh, yes, Twinge, yeah. Twinge, Twinge. Yeah. Twinge. Mm -hmm. Quoted all Talks over. Talks a mm -hmm. lot about how social media and just the, the isolation of your cell phone is really affecting the younger generations. That they, they don't kill each other as much, but they kill themselves more. Exactly. So what we should be encouraging people to put on social media is the here's this great sunset but oh gosh I'm so glad I saw this because the rest of the day was terrible this and this yes. and this happened you know and that kind of thing we need to be doing more of that so there's more of a balance to combat you know, sure. show the underbelly I like that concept that's really good <laughs> so Margaret where can people find out more about you and get your book 
Well, the book is on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's called, again, The Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. It's on Amazon, again, Barnes and Noble at your own little unique bookstore. It can be ordered. It may not be on the shelves, but you can order it. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com. And I have a podcast myself called the Self Work Podcast, S-E-L-F-W-O-R-K. And mm. I talked there about perfectly hidden depression, but I talk about a lot of topics there. I've been doing it for over three years and I love doing the podcast. So they can find me there. I have a Facebook page, Dr. Margaret Rutherford, Instagram, wherever. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, we're going to put all those links in the show note. Margaret, this Perfect. has been a fantastic discussion and so important. You've enlightened and made something that everyone knows about. Everyone talks about perfectionism, but you've brought a whole different angle to understanding it. And I thank you for your work and for enlightening us. And I'd love to have you back on my show again and talk about this in more depth because there's, it's got a lot more angles. I feel like we've just touched yes, the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline, I would love that. Thank you so very much. And again, I'm very honored to be here. Oh, well, thank you so much. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter, where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors.